Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. Flying solo today, you're listening to Heat Rocks. Normally, every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, an album so hot it burns its way into our collective memory. But today, we're going to do something a little bit different in honor of the memory of the late MF Doom, aka Zev Love X, aka Daniel Dumoulet. The world was shocked, I was shocked at least, to learn on New Year's Eve that he had passed away on Halloween of 2020, and the Heat Rock's brain trust decided that we'd put together this episode where we'll be talking about some of Doom's hottest Heat Rocks, his debut as part of KMD, Mr. Hood from 1991, the group's infamous sophomore album, Black Bastards, and last but not least, Mad Villainy, the much-beloved collaboration between MF Doom and Mad Lib, which came out this week, 17 years ago. Everything that glitter ain't fish scale. Let me think. Don't let a faint get his smell. A shot of Jack out of back. It's not an act stack. Forgot about the cackalack. Holler back. Clack, clack, blocker. Villainy. Feel him in your heart. Chocolate chart. Top of start. Shit stopper. Be a smart shopper. Shot a cop. To take us on this retrospective tour, we couldn't have asked for a better guide. Former A&R man and producer, Dante Ross. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dante for Wax Poetics back in 2004, and he did me the honor of writing the foreword to my classic material, The Hip Hop Album Guide. And if I may plagiarize myself, I said this of Dante in that Wax Poetics piece, quote, no job in the music industry is as ill-defined as the A&R. Being in charge of artist and repertoire means juggling hats as label exec, manager, visionary, and at times, babysitter. In theory, they're responsible for bringing talent onto a label and nurturing them to their full potential, but given the general chaos at record labels, what the average A&R does is anyone's guess. Then again, in his time as an A&R at Tommy Boy, Electra, and Stimulated, Dante Ross always knew what to do. He made classics, unquote. And to that point, here is just a sampling of artists that Dante worked with during the course of his A&R career. De La Soul, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, Brand Nubian, Old Dirty Bastard, Everlast, and of course, Doom's first group, KMD. And lest we forget, Dante was also part of the legendary SD50s, aka Stimulated Dummies production team, whose beats have graced the likes of Third Bass, leaders of the new school, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien, and on a personal note, one of my all-time favorite remixes, Grand Poobah's 360, What Goes Around Comes Around. It's an honor to have him with us on our special episode here today. Dante, welcome to Heat Rocks. What up? How are you? I'm doing great. And again, thank you so much for joining us to talk about someone that, of course, you have you you knew well for many, many years. And let's actually start at the beginning. How were you first introduced to Dumoulet? I met Doom from uh, the third base guys who I was working with, but I met them around. I, I want to say I met Doom prior to the gas phase. And Doom was uh, running around two feet behind Search. Search kept telling me about him. Mm. And um, the off-maligned MC Search um, brought them to my attention first. And and as time progressed, I uh, kind of got to know them more and blah, blah, blah. But Search was the first person who was ever waving the MF Doom KMD flag. Yeah, I mean, my introduction to, I think like most people, my introduction to, to Doom back in his Zev Love X days was when he graced the gas face. Next up, Don, a special appearance by KMD's Zev Love X. A gas face, can either be a smile or a smirk when a pair's a monkey wrench to work one's clock and you know my first impressions back then and, and i heard i had already heard some of third base's music prior to this probably off the first single but then when gas face came out and i mean i remember just listening to zev on there and just thinking like this kid can flow like who is this and then when yeah. Peach Fuzz came out in 1990 with that ill xylophone loop, I was all the way in on him and on KMD. Dante, if I have this right, you signed KMD to Electra, and if that's the case, what was your pitch to the label about the group? I mean, they, they were coming off the hit record, so it wasn't really a hard sell. And um, 
I was like, these guys got a hit record. They're super talented. They're really young. And, and, uh, you know, third base is going to shepherd it in. And, and, um, Electra was a little annoyed that they'd missed out on third base. So it made sense. I'm really curious to know how music labels at this point, so we're talking late eighties, early nineties, how are they understanding hip hop as a genre in terms of what acts were out there and who they should consider signing and what their potential might be? Because at this point, hip hop had blown up, but it wasn't yet at the center, I would think of the music industry. And so a lot of labels I would imagine were still trying to navigate their way through this. So in that case, were you effectively like a translator for that world to, to them or were they on To it? an extent, to an extent, no, they definitely weren't on it. I mean, I had a few allies, like the publicists, um, Beth Jacobson and Shelby Mead. Um, Shelby had worked prior with Eric B. and Rakim and a bunch of stuff at MCA at Universal. So she was, she spoke the jargon and Beth did as well. Um, and, and I had a really cool boss, Bob Krasnow, who believed in me. Therefore he believed in what I wanted to do. Um, I think all the minutiae came, all the people between me and Bob. So, you know, there were definitely cultural disconnects between me and, and large members of the staff, but I also was signing records relatively cost effectively and, and being relatively successful. I'm, I'm sure if I wasn't uh, meeting some modicum of success, they wouldn't have been so uh, gracious to, to one, allow me to keep my job and two, to kind of let me behave the way I behave. Cause, uh, my, <laughs> it was a circus. My, I had a whole section of the office and, uh, there was a, a lot, a lot of stuff going on, whether it was brand Nubian KMD or leaders. I was, I was navigating all of these at the same time. Right. And to bring this back to KMD and just for our listeners who may have never been introduced to the group just to kind of lay out the basic background. KMD was Zevlov X, which is Doom, his brother Subrock, and their friend Onyx. As we mentioned, they yep. all grew up in the, the Long Beach uh, section of Strong Island. Uh, Zev and, and Sub produced most of the beats. Uh, all th- of the th- all three of them split rhyme duties, though I think Zev was really the most dominant MC of the trio. He was. What did you think was the potential of the group when you decided to try to sign them? I mean, I thought that they might end up like. Um in the De La Soul, brand Nubian kind of hemisphere, somewhere between those two things. I thought that they, they had um, a very self-aware point of view in making music. They had a lot to say, and they were smart enough, I thought, to say it in an innocuous fashion. So they, they kind of framed a lot of this really heavy stuff they're talking about, like really questioning uh, stereotypes and, and racist ideology, um, in a very, if if I dare to say, cute fashion, they framed it in this kind of juvenile, youthful, playful way. Yeah. Similar to Dela, but they were talking about heavier stuff than Dela. Yeah. And for me, it was exciting to see someone so young and so so smart, um, and and so um, laser focused on exactly how they wanted to present their art. So to me, it was inspiring. I greet you, peace. But why call me money guy? Do I resemble he who never told the right one or him he freed us? So where stands I? Raise another question. Which one's the right one? Some wish to live the single, single. They know the half. I know the 360. If we all live the single, how can we all sing? I'm creative, but you can't remix me. I'm really glad that you're bringing these points up because I have not sat with Mr. Hood in a very, very long time. It's been years. Though 30 years ago, when I first listened to it, I'm sure I probably would have had the same thoughts about how this compares to a De La Soul or to a brand Nubian. But in revisiting the album this past week, what really came home to me was the ways in which this album and the group in a lot of ways can't be that easily compared to other contemporaries at the time. If they were not on their own island, it was at least a peninsula in terms of where they were yeah. at creatively and musically. And the sure. and, and this to, to your point, the ambition of this album leaps off the page to me now in a way that I could not have appreciated back then because I was just too young to understand how ambitious this album was. Right. Well, part of it also, it was kind of ambitious sans pretense. It it wasn't pretentious. It just was right. Mm -hmm. It felt natural as opposed to contrived and, and premeditated. It had a spontaneous feel to it. And I think that's part of the genius of the record. And, and I've listened to it probably more since doom passed than I had in, like you said, it's maybe 30 years. And it was um, surprising 
to me, it was better than I thought it was. It was met with a medium level of success. Mm-hmm. It paled in comparison to Brand Nubian, and and I think Leaders of the New School as well. Though when I listen to it now, I find it actually more interesting than Leaders of the New School's first album, and somewhere closer to Brand Nubian than I thought it was. And it makes sense that Grand Poobah, of all people, is such a fan of KMD. When I when I think back on it now. I think he understood the record probably more than I did. Which makes sense how they ended up working together. I think at the time, it I mean, surprised me. he was a me. fan. Yeah. Uba yeah. was, he was a fan of, of Doom. They had a definite affinity for each other. And hence, he's in the Peach Fuzz video. And, you know, getting Puba anywhere was always a mission. And he willfully <laughs> came and did that. So, you know, once again, they were in tune in a way that maybe I wasn't in, as in tune with. One of the other things that I noticed on this revisit on Mr. Hood that, again, I just did not have enough appreciation for at the time was how how much crate digging went into this album. And it's not like, it's not like I thought, you know, back at the time that they were using obvious, you know, P funk or James Brown loops or anything, but this album is from a, just a sample hounds point of view. I mean, there's a lot going on here. I, I don't know if this was primarily doom that was out there, or if it was him and sub rock, but just the stuff that they brought to the table that went into this album is really impressive in terms of just the, the range of, of stuff that went into it. It was largely doom. He was, he knew records. Um, and he actually, he would come to my studio and go through my records and be like, you want me to use this? You ain't use it. Like he would just like, you know, he was a record hound, him and sub, but, but him more than sub. Um, which is funny though, that at some point in time, I believe doom ran out of records to sample because he would borrow records from a lot of people, whether count base D or, Mad Lib or myself or mm-hmm. Egon or others who would hip him to records that he ended up using. Um, the thing about him though, was he was the way he made records, he would start them and sub rock would finish them often. Mm. So he didn't have a lot of patience. And if you hear his later music, you really hear the unfinished kind of versions of those things. And I always thought it was funny that when sub rock passed, the records kind of took a turn more for the lo-fi kind of thing and i and i feel that's because subrock wasn't there because subrock was technically like i think he was more advanced than than doom was and you can't talk about doom without talking about subrock because that is symbiotic relationship um more akin to twin brothers than brothers if that makes sense yeah yeah the original man is the black man true Presented to the youth is more than enough proof. But when one mixes truth with a goof, cause this contradiction and confusion. So I'll raise the roof. Speaking of the beats, though, on Mr. Hood, I went back to uh, my guy Brian Coleman's fantastic chapter about KMD. So and, good, right? Yeah, and check the technique volume two from 2014. And really, I cannot highly recommend both volumes of, of Brian's books enough. They're, they're brilliant. Brian did all of us justice with those books. I could not agree more. And one of the things that he does in there, he interviews you, and this is you talking about uh, the production of Mr. Hood. Quote, I never liked the way the record sounded. I thought the drums were funny on a lot of tracks. There was a lot of demo-itis on that record, unquote. And when after reading it, I went back and listened to the album, and I feel like I get what you're saying, partly because as deep as the samples are, the drums don't really crack in the way that you ideally would have wanted, especially by 91. I guess KMD needed someone like Bob Power to help step in to, to kind of juice them up a bit. I, I was always a little um, annoyed at the Sonics. And the this is just so ridiculous by today's standards. They kind of made the record twice. So they made a lot of it in my basement. And then they had to track it again. And they chased the basement sound as opposed to working in Chungking and utilizing the sounds of Chung King. And John Gamble, my my partner in Simulated Dummies, engineered and mixed a lot of the records. And it's one of the things that led me later on down the road to not allow him to mix my records anymore because he would get tied to the sound. He got in a demo 
and it would prohibit the records from expanding their sonic palette sometimes. Yeah. And I always thought that he had too much mid range and, and not enough high end. And that was always my, my critique of the record. When I listen to it, like you say, in comparison to a Bob Powers tribe record, it sounds brighter and right. therefore fuller where, where I thought those records sound a little flat. If I had to do it again, I would have had a different engineer mix it. Well, despite all that, I'm curious off of Mr. Hood, what is the fire track off of that album for you? I love God squad nitty gritty. I thought that was great. Um, I, I, I was partial to hum rush cause I did it. And there's a crazy story to, to how that came to be. I don't think I realized that you had worked on hum rush. So first of all, let's take a listen to it. No, 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 shake your head or your rock. Forget about what I'm saying. Your fist to the drum and hum along if you can't sing along. Hum along, hum along if you can't sing along. Hum along, hum along if you can't sing along. I love any track that has that kind of bright piano loop going. So how did you put this together? Where's this from? <laughs> it's, it's such a fucked up story. Um, so I made the drums. Dale had used that record too, but I, I had the drums. And it's a Sly and the Family Stone drum loop. And I chopped it up. It's a mono drum loop. And I, I did some I did some crazy surgery on it, me and Gamble. So I wasn't in the studio and Gamble played them the drums. He was like, oh, check this thing out, Dante and me. Like we, we chopped up these drums yesterday. And he was like, oh, I want to use that. And I wasn't in the studio and I, I showed up a few hours later. And they had slowed those drums down and were making the song and I, I was like you don't fucking ask me like that's i have i, I have that in another song like <laughs> i'm you know and and doom was like oh don't don't worry about it because because i used them better than you did anyway and i was like i fucking hate you man i was like i'm going to get a sandwich and i, I said this to to carmonica we went and we uh we, we went to this spot we used to always go to the italian food center and he was like Yo, Unc, I got you on a sandwich today. And like he was like, Yeah, he was, that's that's like that's your royalty for, for the song. And I was like, I fucking hate you. And I was like, if that's my fucking payment for the song, I'll, I want to get a Manhattan special coffee soda too. And I got a soda too, and I opened it and it exploded. He's like, That's what you get for being greedy. basically i just did the drums on the song i would have never used that the the sesame street Bert and ernie hum thing but i thought it was great i just thought it was such a, a funny slick record and how he did it and yeah. he was right i would have never used the drums that slow he slowed them down to to the point where they sound drunk they sound kind of offbeat yeah i just thought it was super cool how he did it and mm. we could all use the same records but we the genius is how we would all use them different yeah. So he used it very differently than I would. They paid from this mic within my hand. I'm not your average everyday cotton picking a bale and hay. Whole tricking brother who likes to eat chicken. Anyway, just hum along. As the drummer drums along. This I bring along, not to sing along. I mean, I think in terms of fire tracks off of this album, and I totally hear you in terms of how this album is sequenced. Yeah, I mean, it really is designed to be, you know, end to end listen, right? That said, I'm still really partial to Peach Fuzz. I think it's just the sound Peach of it. It's great. It's, it's super smart. It's so playful. But I mean, Peach Fuzz aside, because I mean, that's always going to have a, a very special place for me. But during the re-listen, I never, I guess, paid attention close enough to Soul Flexin from back in the day, because that was a song that on the re-listen really jumped out to me. And because I'm a sample hound, I'm like, let me see where he gets the, the loop on this from. And I realize it's a super obscure $500 funky blues single uh that you know produces this very vervy you know organ jazz kind of cut now just to blow this up like i intended straight from the cause and much damage will i send it i recommend it hitting just fitting just fine i'm throwing up focus for locals all it's funny because I just said that it has kind of a funky jazz organ sound. There's no organ there. It's just guitar, but it has, you just feel like there should be a B3 humming along somewhere in the background with it. It just has that kind of feel to it. Um, but it's like those kind of, it's just that ingenuity to pull that particular loop for this. I, I'm really amazed by it. Yeah, 
And I have no idea where he got that little Eddie record from. Um, I think he turned me on to the record. And it sounds to me like something that we would have used for Pooba. You know what I mean? It's like got that kind of staxy feel to it. I thought it was cool because that wasn't necessarily their wheelhouse. Yeah. But he was good with the records. I got to say, like, and if you listen later on, like, he got really good with the records. Like, he was smart, though. And he he would show up um, to my, because they tracked the record originally in my basement studio, the SD studio. And um, he was a scientist. He showed up with his records with no sleeves. And <laughs> they've just been a fucking knapsack. But he knew exactly what he wanted to do. And yeah. he made most of it right then, then and there. It's funny, too, because later on, I sold him my MPC 60 when I got a 3000 mm. and I remember showing sub rock, not him how to use it. Well, let's move on to what was supposed to be KMD's follow-up album, Black Bastards. And we don't have to necessarily revisit the entire story behind what happened to it. Uh, and people really should read Brian Coleman's chapter about it and Check the Technique, Volume 2, as we mentioned a moment ago. But there are a few things that have to be discussed here. Um, the first being, of course, that Sub Rock was killed in a traffic accident just as the album was being completed. And then number so two... It was, yeah. So that's a little wrong, though. It was, okay. a, it was, a, it was I want to say, close to six months before the record was done. Uh, okay. At least four months. Okay. So he, he definitely contributed to the record, but the record was, was not done done yet. Good correction. Uh, the second thing in terms of what happened to the record at, at the uh, industry level is that a couple of Billboard music writers and a few execs at Electra were unhappy with the cover art of the album, which showed the Sambo character, which had originally been introduced on Mr. Hood um, on the cover of Black Bastards. That character was being lynched. And in the subsequent fallout, and you can correct me if I get the, the facts are wrong, Electra ended up dropping the group, giving the album back to Doom who did eventually release it around 2000. But at that point, it just could not have had the same impact as it did in 93 because of the, the passage of time. Um, and so Dante, before we kind of dig into the album as an album, is there anything else that you feel like needs to be said in terms of what happened to the album? There, there's a couple of things. So, you know, obviously Subrock gets killed and, and um, at this point, search is no longer involved. So just to get that misconception out, he was, absent from most of everything after they got signed and when mm. we made Mr. Hood. So Pete and Bobito were working together and they were managing the band. And um, the, the record was um, vilified by first Terry Rossi in the Money Morning Monitor, which was a Billboard radio report. And then by Havelock Ellis, I mean, Havelock Nelson, Nelson sorry. Yeah. And Havelock Nelson was an acquaintance and he knew me and he knew Pete and he knew Bobito and he may have known doom. I, I can't say for sure, but he also knew my publicist, Beth and Shelby, Beth Jacobson. And he never sought an audience with any of us. So he never asked us to explain the artwork whatsoever. Mm. And I just want to say it again, that that started the ball rolling. And then several people were asked about the record and they said it was offensive. So there's a lot of people who live and eat and breathe off of the culture called hip hop who were responsible for throwing that record and KMD's career to the wolves. So I'll leave it at that. A few things to add here. One, because Billboard magazine is archived pretty thoroughly on Google Books, you can actually look up those original columns by Terry Rossi and Havelock Nelson. And it's worth just noting that it's not like they devoted the entire column to critiquing Black Bastards or KMD. In most, in both cases, this was just maybe a paragraph, but it was a paragraph that really stuck or really mattered in terms of how its impact was felt within the music industry at the time. It was a small mention, and, and we can't take it out of context. So Ice-T a year earlier had met the debacle that became Body Count. Yeah, cop So, mm -hmm. right. There was precedent for this. And we saw, I don't know if you know this, but Howie Klein had sent a, a letter out to everyone who worked in at WMG. It was WIA back then. And it said, we will not cave into censorship. Um, we support our artists to, you know, voice their, their opinions and on political matters. And this is a problem in, in the community. And Ice-T is speaking about it. So he was forced to cave in like a month later. Right. Mm, mm, so mm. there was precedent that said, 
we will cave into censorship. So on the heels of that, a year later, um, in, a, in a PMRC heightened era, we caved in. And I think that I mean that the particular social historical context is really relevant here because you look at the cover of Black Bastards now and you get how yes some people might find it offensive but I think from like a 2021 point of view it's not in, in the history of you know questionably or arguably offensive hip hop or just album cover art period regardless of genre this does not seem to to me rank in like the the upper echelon of it but given that particular time given sort of what you're talking about with the controversy around um, Ice-T's metal, ba- metal rap group, uh, uh, Body Count, and the huge controversy around the song Cop Killer, you can understand why labels would have cold feet. Even if people just start to ask the question, they're like, right. whoa, right. Uh, which I right. think is, I mean, yeah. You, you can ask the question, but you have to give audience to right. the creator of the art, and that wasn't provided at any level. The other thing is when you look at the art, the message is very obvious. Yes. He's playing hangman and he is hanging a stereotype. Right. And a schmuck could see that and know what it is. Right. They're, they're missing the subversive qualities of what that art is supposed to represent. And, and, and if nothing else, KMD was a subversive group. Yeah. They were always going to hit you with a subversive version of black empowerment. That was their, their gift. And I, and I thought it was, it is one of those things that is, and I'll stop pontificating about it, but, it is one of the things that has perennially bothered me my entire career. This never set right with me. It never will. And I think with Doom's passing, it reopened the offense to me. I feel you. So, you know. With the album, so in terms of as just a, as a body of music, I love, 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 love Black Bastards. Black Even- Bastards is incredible. It's much better than Mr. Hood. Even though the early bootleg versions uh, that came out, I think like 95, they sounded like shit. They were terrible sounding. Yeah, yeah. But despite that, I thought the album was such a leap forward by the group to the point that you just made. And in hindsight- I mean, musically, it was, it was leaps and bounds better. It, it was, I mean, the music on it, it's great. It yeah. sounds better. It's mixed better. The, the choice of musics, the rapping is better. Onyx not being in the group, I think actually helps in a weird way. Um, and, and it is doom really fine tuning his instrument, his rapping ability. And there's more sub rock on it as well. Right. You tell me if I'm overstating this because in hindsight, I feel like if this album had come out in 93, we would have ended up talking about it in the same way that we talk about albums like Blowout Comb by Diggable Planets, maybe even Low End Theory. I always, th- I always think One for All, it, it would have been, and you're talking second albums, but, but I feel like it would have given them a, a more brand Nubian-esque career. I, I feel like it sits closer in the pocket of One for All than it mm. does in the pocket of Mr. Hood. It's not as cute. It's not... And, and, you know, it just sounds good, man. Their choice of samples is slick. Um, the features are great. I just thought it was, an, I think everyone around us felt they leveled up. And how much intentionality was there to really advance a new idea of what KMD could be as when they were sitting down working on this? Well, well I think it was all Doom. I think that Doom wanted to, to um, he had gotten older. He had a child. He, um fell out with, with search. Um, and, and I think, um, life was different for him. Mm-hmm. Consequences were, were different. He was looking at the world different and you can't underestimate the fact that guys were, were indulging in psychedelics. Um, they were no longer, uh, the straight edge Muslim answer a lot guys that they had been, they were participating or drinking, they were smoking, they were taking acid, they were taking mushrooms, mm. they were using mind expansion Drugs are hanging out in the city with Curious George and the CM mob a lot. They're hanging out with me a lot. Life was different. They had they had grown up. And, you know, at that age, right, in life, you fast forward very quickly. Like, so in your 30s to 40, you, you may not grow so much. But, like, when you're 19 to 20, 21, you grow a lot, right? So in that year and change, they evolved as people. Life became very different, as it will when you're that age. I should blow my mind. 
mentioned just a moment ago about how just everything felt better, more sophisticated. I think for me, you really hear it. I mean, certainly in the lyrics, but for me, anytime I engage with an album, I'm always listening just in terms of the beats. And to your point, musically, this just feels just more advanced. And the, the, even though I wish they could come up with a remastered version, because I just feel like it it still could have sounded a little bit cleaner, but I don't want to be, yeah, I don't want to sound petty about that. But despite that, every track on here just feels so much better. Well, also, you know, the the, re, the reissue is just taken from this the CD or the tape. It's right. not like they went and did anything to it. So that right. it sounds even worse, I think, actually. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's what I mean. It needs a proper, like, not even a remastering. It just needs a proper mastering. Exactly. Because the, the, the cassette was never mastered. So your advanced cassette wasn't mastered. Mm-hmm. So. Which explains a lot. That's why we never got vinyl. Right. Or the vinyl that did come out just sounded exactly the same as the, all the other right. versions. But Promo it, vinyl. Right. There's never little, commercial vinyl. Right. It's all a little bit muddled. And yet, despite that, I think this is just a, such a wonderfully, fantastically sounding album in terms of where it's it was going. The question I had was, you, you mentioned all the enhancing things that, that the group was involved with uh, in making this. And we're, we're not forgetting that 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 Subrock dies. Right. Don't put in finishing touches. And there's some of that darkness in that record. Absolutely. You feel it. There's a lot of spoken word that gets worked into different parts of this. And obviously going back to Mr. Hood, they're digging through kids' albums, spoken word albums. And so I've always associate KMD with drawing upon, and especially on, on Black Bastards, right? There's a lot of specifically, like it's the black movement poetry of the early 70s. Kane the Blue Gorilla. Right. And and some last poets mixed in, some Gil Scott, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So what was it about those groups and that particular style that spoke to Doom so much to incorporate that into this album? It's funny because he was he was messing with the last poet stuff and Gamble hipped him to Kane the Blue Gorilla. Mm-hmm. So we grew up with with Khalil Kane, uh, who's Blue Gorilla's his dad, Guylan Kane. So we knew about this record. He's a friend of ours. So we um, knew the record and, and the, you know, Khalil was like a neighborhood superstar. He's like best basketball player in our neighborhood. So, so we was like, Hey, you know, this record. And, and he really got into that record far more than me or, or, or Gamble had, but he just, I remember had the record, he had the CD and he was rocking out with that, like for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and Gamble, I think hipped him to a cuss of the Gil Scott stuff. Yeah. And that's really where it came from. And, and he really kind of channeled one in that direction. That made a lot of sense. If you think about a young black, Muslim man in New York city. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, it's a, it, it's totally logical. Right. And if you're, you're sampling music from that same era, why not sample some of the ideology and sort of the theology in a sense too. Right? And a blue gorilla is like a genius record, the consummated monkey, the, the whole concept of that is just so, I mean, it's also funny. It's like, you know, and, and not such a dis uh, disconnect away from KMD. It, it's like, it's dropping some real knowledge, but also it's doing it kind of funny. And KMD kind of is, you know, did the same thing on the first record. It's like kind of clever and innocuous and humorous, but they're dropping some shit. It's the same thing with the Blue Gorilla. I feel like there's there's a definite connection between those two ways of looking at things. Well, we will be back with more of a conversation with Dante Ross about the music of the late MF Doom after a brief word from our sibling Max Fun podcast. Keep it locked. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we're the hosts of One Bad Mother, a podcast about parenting. Parenting is hard, and we have no advice. 
but we do see you doing it. Honk if you like to do it. <laughs> Didn't we have a bumper sticker a while back that was like, yeah. honk if you did it? That's what it I was. I think it was honk if you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Why did we not ever make this? Those we are did delight. make them. I <laughs> think they're still in the Max Fun store. <laughs> honk, honk, you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Biz. So are you. Each week, we'll be here to remind you that you're doing a good job. You can find us on MaximumFun.org. Honk, honk. Toot, toot. Hey, Jay Keith. Hey, Helen. Hey, you've got another true-false quiz for me? Yep. Our trivia podcast, Go Fact Yourself, used to be in front of a live audience. True. Turns out that's not so safe anymore. Correct. Next. Unfortunately, this means we can no longer record the show. False. The show still comes out every first and third Friday of the month. Correct. Finally, we still have great celebrity guests answering trivia about things they love on every episode of Go Fact Yourself. Definitely true. And for bonus points, name some of them. Recently, we've had uh, Ophira Eisenberg, plus tons of surprise experts like Yardley Smith and Suzanne Summers. Perfect score. Woo-hoo. You can hear Go Fact Yourself every first and third Friday of the month with all the great guests and trivia that we've always had. And if you don't listen, well, then you can go fact yourself. That's the name of our podcast. Correct. Woo-hoo. And we're back on Heat Rocks talking about the music of MF Doom with our guest producer and A&R man, Dante Ross. Dante, for years, I knew of you as an A&R person, right? And I didn't realize at the time back in, in the early 90s that you were also part of the SD50s. And I've always been curious, was it ever considered a conflict of interest that you were working with groups on an executive level, but also producing and remixing beats for some of the same groups and for other artists? I mean, now that I think about it, I'm not sure why I would see those things as being a conflict. It's just, I don't know that many people who are both sides of it like that. It wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, it it was when I produced this record that was a Frisbee for this girl, Shazzy, because it didn't connect. When I first met you, my eyes were full of wonder. My heart filled with joy from the spell that I was under. Cracked a smile so delectable that I could eat it. Eyes so full of mischief that I could read it. Your face told me a story that I really didn't want to know. Marks and shattered horses you were running like a gym. But when I produced records for Brand Nubian right after I produced Third Base, it was an asset. The attributes hide the helper to another god in need. He Allah God as long as I proceed to civilize the uncivilized way to wisdom to the group from the wise. I guess I'm like the verbalizer both the fact of moving black with this Asiatic blackman is a dog spell back with the makeup. And I had uh this guy I worked with named Raul Roach who pitched it as an asset. He hired me, he's Max Roach's son mm. and a dear friend of mine. And Raul always pitched it as an asset. Um, hey, this guy's like making hits. Like that's that's a magnet for talent. So it was not ever a super notable conflict of interest like it could have been. And yeah. I always think that like, you know, I might have been a predecessor to Puff, right? Diddy did the same thing. Um, and if I was smarter or had more cojones, I would have been the executive producer and AR guy for third base because with Sam Sever, I made them a group, but mm-hmm. but I didn't understand how to navigate things. I was I was unsure of how to do it. I had a notion to do it, but it wasn't a huge conflict of interest now. Yeah. Now I mentioned during my intro that my favorite SD fifty work was the remix to, to Grand Poobah's three sixty. I'm curious for right. you, what is the what is the beat that you're most proud of that you put together during that time? So in that time period, that that's not my favorite time of music I made. I I'm much prouder of doing the Everlast stuff. Because it's when I made the leap to be a real producer mm-hmm. and and really, you know, you know, I learned how to play a little bit and and learned a lot more about arranging and really making music that's more three-dimensional. So for me, I always think of what it's like or even the Santana stuff I've done. So to me, that's my favorite stuff I've done, maybe because of the experience of doing it. But but I always really enjoyed working with Grand Puba as well. Mm-hmm. So and we had a great chemistry. So whether it's if I had to name one thing from that era, it would be Step to the Rear um, by Grand Puba, which which and all actually my partner, Hebe made that. Step to the rear, Grand 
who was on arrival. Raised in the ghetto, singing songs called survival. Running around town, giving all the girls boober snacks. I wouldn't try to steal a style, you just might catch a cardio. Figured the way to get paid is to grab the mic rehearsal. You know? Smooth as Jermaine, so honey, don't take it personal. There's no need in trying to distance. Let's bring this back to KMD's Black Bastards and talk about some of the fire tracks off of this album. Oh, um, what a good I'll, record. I'll start this, I'll start this round. And as I said before, you know, I love this album. It's really hard for me to pick a clear single winner in this category, though. You know, if I want something to vibe to, it might certainly be Plum Skins, which has always been a favorite. But I mean, the first time I heard it, to the most recent time I heard it, which was an hour ago, just the title track, like Black Bastards as a title track is so magical to me. But, but... If I have to pick just one song, it's the remix to What a No. It features MF Grimm. MF Grimm. Right? Does uh, his one of his very early, early features. And what I think is an absolutely haunting loop from Gil Scott Heron. Who will survive in World War Three? Who got a style that come close to me? Niggas screaming battle who stepped to me. I just wrote about this song for Jeff Weiss's Passion of the Weiss blog, and even 30, almost 30 years later, this song still feels as hype as when I first heard it. So Dante, I'm wondering for you, what are the fire, what's the fire track or tracks off of Black Bastards? I love Sweet Premium Wine, Smoking That Shit, Contact Blit, um, so- Sounded Like a Rock. I guess those are the ones I really loved, and and um, obviously the single, What a End No, was was always my joint. And I really liked it because he had the Jody Watley sample. And, you know, you want you always want to think of him as, or KMD as super hip hop, like backpack, right? But like it's a predecessor for the joint on Operation Doomsday when he, he samples the Quincy Jones joint. You know what I mean? Yeah. He always had his ear to that. And that's a very New York thing. And I mean, we New York, particularly Harlem guys, always love R&B records, right? And I just thought it was so cool how we flipped the R&B record, the intro to the Jody Watley. I thought that was genius. And when I first heard it, I was like, you motherfucker, you used the Jody Watley shit. And if you notice, we never cleared it. We didn't clear it. Like, we were like, I think we can get over. And we just, we rolled the dice on it, which is crazy, y'all. Yo, Contact Blit was incredible. Two yeah. three premium wine because I used to have these, these these cases of wine that I got for Christmas that I left in my office and they were they were sweet premium wine and that's where the title that came from. He would come in my office and be like, "You ready for sweet premium wine time?" And we'd start drinking. So it had a sentimental nod to to my office and the cases of wine I had sitting there. It's also one of the loops, and that's from what QB and it's oh, this is Chicago group that was on Curtom. The Five Stair Steps, brand new dance by the Five Stair Steps, um, featuring Cubby. Right, brand new band uses the same loop, um, yeah. and it's one of those ones where it's if you go back to the original source material, it's just a two bar intro, but it sounds incredible. I, I wish the whole song by the five stair steps was just based around that. Yeah, riff. Cause that part is so good. And the whole rec song's not it, that good. It, it isn't, but the way in which it's, I, I've never heard a version of this flipped that I dislike. It's, it just has that beauty to it. And I thought the way, when I, when I heard sweet premium one, which was, was not on that, the early bootlegs of black bastards, but did eventually come out on the, on the deluxe version. I think Bob Beto put it when they put out that EP, of Black Bastard stuff. I, I think it was on there and I was like, oh my God, they used the same five stair steps loop and it still sounds amazing. So 
I had high hopes for the record. I got to be honest. I mean, of course, you, you worked it. I mean, <laughs> I'd be surprised to hear you say otherwise. So, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, it's not always that case. Like, you know, sometimes you walk into one, you know, you got a dud. Right. You do everything you can to make it not a dud. It's still a dud. Right. I, I thought we really had one. Yeah, you did. And it. I mean, I'm, I'm glad it, it finally did see the light of day if it wasn't in the moment that it should have been. But nonetheless, like I said, I mean, this album, you know, 30 years, almost 30 years later, still, still knocks. I mean, a lens to his mystique as much as it was a horrible thing to witness happen to him. It also creates MF Doom and it becomes this thing, man. It's, it's the smile of hip hop. It's that great record you never heard. And just for audience members who are trying to understand the reference smile and being the kind of the beach boys was supposed to be the follow-up to uh, pet Pet sounds and Brian Wilson just couldn't really get his stuff together or maybe the group as a whole kind of fell apart around that same time and so smile is sort of one of the most famous unreleased albums along with i think what probably prince's black album is, is up there and right. black bastards is the hip-hop version of that so i always say it's the hip-hop smile um and and you know i gotta i, I need a second yeah it's it's hard for me to talk about it sometimes yeah i mean it's an album that as much as we want to embrace the the great things about it, I mean, it's a, it's an album shrouded in tragedy. Subrock's death, what happened with the label, and so I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't want to bring up the, the the dark side of it. It's kind of unavoidable, but I, I mean, I can't even imagine what it is for you to have to think about it because obviously you're far more intimately connected with it than almost anyone besides Doom and and, and Sub and yeah, well, Doom is like my little brother, so yeah, for me to see him go through all that bullshit, it was rough, man, and and. Like I said, with him passing, it it opens those wounds again. Casting shadows over the sun. Casting shadows over the sun. Casting shadows over the sun. Now, you mentioned how one of the things we get out of this is kind of the birth of MF Doom. And so this brings us up to Mad Villainy. And for audience members who need a little bit of background here, uh, you know, Dumoulin transforms, in essence, into MF Doom, uh, beginning of the late 90s. He starts releasing singles through Fondalum, which was Bobito's indie label. And my my understanding about this was that he felt that because the industry was treating him like he was bad news, like he was radioactive, he basically leaned into that and adopted this alter ego as this villain, right? Dr. Doom, right? And that's the, the, obviously the, inspiration, the inspiration behind Metal Face Doom. What do you make... What did you make out of the reinvention at the time in which you started seeing him using this MF Doom name? I thought it was so cool. It's so funny the way I got to discover Operation Doomsday. I was like a little late to the party, right? Because for me, it was like a little painful, like just all the stuff with Doom. And I remained friends with him and he disappeared. He lived in Manhattan, in Midtown. I'd see him, man. And he was, he was a little sketchy, you know, it was like. And, and I had great affinity for him. We were very close. Um, I mean, he, he stayed at my house a zillion times. So we were, we were really good friends, but I worried about him. And um, I was, it was post making the Everlast record. I'm in LA. I was driving around with my boy, Mike Brillstein, DJ Mike B. And he plays, he puts on Operation Doomsday. And I'm like, I am not hip to it yet. I'm like, yo, that's Doom. He's like, yeah, duh. In his right hand was a man's worst nightmare. Loud enough to burst his right ear drum close range. The game is not only dangerous, but it's most strange. I sell rhymes like dimes. The one who mostly keep cash, but brag about the broken time. Joker rhymes like the issue just having to see me trick. So that's how I I got to know about MF Doom. And, and you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. The MF Doom story, if you know anything about comic books. Dr. Doom has a tragic accident. He comes back embittered and seeking revenge mm-hmm. on the world mm-hmm. and battles a fantastic four. So it makes sense that, you know, Doom picks, picks Dr. Doom, right? He, he picks the mad villain. He's the super villain um, as opposed to a superhero. Yeah. So he builds on the negativity um, that he experienced and he comes back mad at the world. Right. But it's all kind of tongue in cheek and funny. Um, but but like I, I said, this ad nauseum, it's a real metaphor for the black man in America. You know, mm. hand me the short end of the stick. I'm going to turn it around and hit you upside your head with it. 
mm-hmm. feel like that's what Doom did, and he did it unconsciously. It just was what it was. He used all the pain and tragedy thrown his way as like vitamins for his superpowers. Mm-hmm. He comes back as a supervillain, and it's genius, brilliant. And I think in the interim, he also becomes a much better rapper. Not much better, but he fine tunes his instrument even more. Right. His sword is sharper than ever. Yeah. You actually kind of just touched on what I was just about to ask in terms of what, where he's drawing his kind of performative inspiration from, because I mean, you've worked with some really eclectic personalities in your career, Prince Paul, uh-huh. old dirty bastard, doom. And I'm sure each of these guys were different to, uh, you know, certain, you know, obviously in their own unique way. Um, but I'm curious in terms of to what extent, especially with doom was that a character or persona that he was playing as opposed to a reflection of something that was really him as a personality. Um, Cause with doom, like, I mean, he's putting on the mask in both literal and figurative ways. So it's kind of hard. You, you, you never know what you're getting in terms of how much of this is actually Dumoulin and how much of this is like a persona that Dumoulin is playing. And, and I think that none of us really know where it begins and ends. I think if anyone says they do know exactly where it begins and ends, they're full of shit. That's part of the beauty of it, right? He's shrouded in mystery. And and one thing about him, he was very poised and always um, deflected everything with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. So his armor was humor a lot, right? He he never really let you know how much it hurt him when his brother died or when he lost his record deal. He always made kind of light of it. Um, That's how he was. So as much pain as he went through, he always kind of made it a joke. He always mm. found a way to laugh at it. Right. So I think that that's part of mad villain too. He's like, is it a put on? Is it real? Yeah. And you know, I got this alter ego, right? When you put a mask on, you get to act a little different. You can act up more because you're not as uh, tied to the, the fallout, the ramifications of your actions. So he's anonymous or semi anonymous. So he gets to put on this whole character and voice all the shit he might not have had the balls to do if he's still Zev Lovex. Dripping off the beat, kinda dripping off the meat grinder. Heat niner, pimping, stripping, soft, sweet minor. China was a neat sign of trouble with the script digits. Double dip, bubble lip, subtle list, midget. Borderline, schizo, sort of fine, tits, though, quarter wine, order grind, quarter to nine, let's go. Now, Mad Villainy, as I mentioned during the intro, came out 17 years ago this week. I think it is so considered good. considered sort of the consensus best of the Doom albums. Um, it has its own, you know, its, its own very storied history, which is that Mad Lib and Doom began working on it in 2002, but then Mad Lib's demo gets stolen and then the album gets yep. leaked. And so they delayed working on it for at least a year. So what were your impressions of it when Mad Villainy finally dropped in 04? I mean, I thought it was genius. I've, I felt a couple of things. I felt like one, Mad Lib was showing out. I was like, yeah. Mad Lib's showing out right now. Mm-hmm. He's showing us all. He got mad records and he, he really knows how to freak them. And I thought that um, maybe because the Sonic template wasn't dooms, he shined brighter because he had to really match what Mad Lib was throwing at him. And I thought it was fucking, I, I thought it's genius to me. It's still, I think the high point of his entire career musically, it's my favorite record he ever made of all the records he made. It's, mm. you know, and, I, and, and it's one that I always listen to. Yeah. Like it's one that's stayed in my rotation forever. Um, there's a couple songs in it that are just, I mean, all caps might be the best he ever rapped. Showing what they know not through flows of hot molasses. Do it like the robot to headspin to boogaloo. Took a few minutes to convince the average boogaloo. It's ugly, like look at you, it's a damn shame. Just remember all caps when you spell the man name. I had befriended Egon around this time. Uh, and I knew I'd known the guys from Stone's Throw going back to when when uh, when Chris Manick, uh, Peanut Butter Wolf used to live in the Bay Area because I was a Bay Area DJ from the 90s. And so when this LP was first announced, you know, I was sort of early on the news and just it just felt kind of in that instant hindsight, if that phrase makes any sense, that it make it made total sense that Mad Lib, who, of course, had earned his own raves through his own alter ego, uh, Quasimodo, would collab with Doom, you know, another alter ego. And when that album came out. I, I think you know the expectations were really high. That the big delay behind it, people were wondering if it was ever going to you know drop. And when it finally came out, I mean, it's one of those albums that really I felt lived up to those to that hype and those expectations. And just and maybe this is part of what you're referring to. 
it just has this weird and really wonderful energy to it. And I remember when I first, the first time I, I just sat with it, accordion, which is the second song comes on. And I just, I, I remember then just thinking, what is it that I'm getting myself in for? Living off borrowed time, the clock tick faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster. Dick dastardly and muttly with sick laughter. A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master. I see E. Cole, nice to be old. Y2 GST, twice to threefold. He sold scrolls, low and behold. Know who's the illest ever, like the greatest story told. Keep your glory going. I mean, his rap, it's the best rapping I think he ever did. I don't know, mm-hmm. man. I love that record. I listened to the whole thing and. And it wasn't one I had to go back to to listen to. You know, it didn't hit me like that. Right. It hit me different. I can't explain it. I mean, Accordion is so genius. Meat Grinder, like, it's so good, that record. And, and I love that the songs are mad short. They, like, hit you in the head. They're like a sock to the jaw and they run, you know? It's like, <laughs> and people hadn't really made records like that yet. They're just like, Step to the Arena is the only other record I could think of that was really short songs yeah i thought that was so cool you know i I hear they were eating mushrooms and and drinking a lot of henny it sounds like it it sounds like (laughs) they were like they were in a room and they were just on one you know but that's one of those records i just really loved and bumped and biblically was into it mate it's a record that really got me to appreciate madly Goonie Google, Looney Cuckoo, like Arika knew off Muzu Review, but who knew the mask had a loose screw? Hell could hardly tell, had to tighten it up like the Drells and Archie Bell. It speaks well of the hyperbase, wasn't even tweaked and it leaked into cyberspace. Couldn't wait for the snipes to place, at least a track listing, bold print typeface. Stop for a year. So what, what to you is the fire track off of this album? I mean, all caps is is the easy one, you know. I it mean, really I, is. Yeah, it's just it's such a a great record, and and like I said, I always loved you know Meat Grinder, Accordion. I mean, Figaro is dope. I mean, but if I had to pick one, it's all caps. That's my joint. So nasty that it's probably somewhat of a travesty having me. Then he told the people you can call me your majesty. Keep your battery charged. He know it won't stick, yo. And it's not his fault to kick slow. Should have let your trick hold. Folks can't see this because you're listening to this, but we both, Dante and I both have like stink face on right now just listening to this because it's just so mm, like that. Yo, I played that so much when Doom passed. My girl was like, yo, you got to stop playing that record. <laughs> I was like, nah, I'm gonna play that. Whip up a slice of nice verse pie, hit it on the first try, villain. The worst guy, spot hot tracks like spot a pair of fat asses. Shots of the scotch from out the square shot glasses. And he won't stop till he got the mask. You're talking about how this mad villainy was really a moment in time. And speaking of, you know, that moment in time, right? This album comes out in 2004, which was really just Doom's insanely prolific period. And then after this, his volume just dries up substantially. Anyway, I mean, there's some personal stuff in there, like him getting marooned in Europe in you know t- 2010 because he's they don't let him back in the U.S. because he's not a, a naturalized citizen. That's certainly part of it. But even before that, his productivity had really, really slowed down. Like after that 2004 mark, do you have a sense of what happened in terms of he had been putting out so much music and then it just poof? I think life happened, man. Mm. You know, you, you know he. He also recycled a lot of music he had put out. You know, he was doing the same record augmented versions of, you know? Yeah. Um, and and I think um I think life happened, man. I think he he had a lot on his plate. And and I think a lot of it was heavy, you know. And I think yeah. um I just think there was a lot on his plate. He had kids and he couldn't get back to America and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I talked to Doom a lot around two 15 to 16 up into 217 um and and i people i was one of the people um who people would hit up to get verses from him like mugs all those mugs verses with makami and all that that came from from me and some other stuff like that people would be like how can i find doom and and i was lucky enough to throw some things his way and we had always talked about um adele and doom record we've been talking about it since Electra, and we never got it made. And if I have one huge regret, is that we never got that record made. And I should have just grabbed the bull by the horns and made the beats. I should just been like, "Yo, I'm gonna make them here. Fuck with them, and we'll fix them later." And I didn't do that. But you know, I talked, I, I spoke to him a lot. Um, we'd Skype, and I, I would tell him to take your stupid mask off, like you know, like 
Wait, wait, he was wearing the mask when you were Skyping the first, with him? The first time I was like, you know, and, and he was like, oh, shit, you look mad old. And I was like, yo, your, your stomach's in your chest. What happened? Like, we just, it was a lot of snaps that, you know, um, and, and I think he wanted to make music, but, but also I've been told that when his son passed, um, right. it, it was a, it, a lot of things changed in his life. As, um, as one could well imagine, certainly, certainly. Now, one of the rumors that are out there was supposedly him and Ghostface had completed an album together. Do you know if that's true? I don't know if they finished it, but I got several songs. Okay. I think a lot of people have songs. I think I have I have five songs, um, and they're in various stages of, of completion. How do the two sound together? They sound great. I mean, yeah. there's one song that was out, right, yeah, that right. they put out for the, the Adult Swim thing. Strife. Original rights, dead wrong or dead right, a night. Zombies staring, deer stuck in the headlights. Fucking Harlem, got that work. Come and get the nada for nada and get jerked. Bad, good, good as in hood. Evil lurks in the Um, Unfortunately, we're never going to probably hear the end result. And if we do, it'll be, uh, you know, it may be a money grab. And, and right. that's one thing I hope doesn't happen. I hope his, his catalog and genius isn't diluted by thirsty people who are doing money grabs. Well, if you had to describe the life or the artistry or the personality of doom in three words, what three words would you choose? Unique, original black man. That's four, it's four but I'm going to give it to you. I, 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 that's that works. That works. Well, before we bounce out of here, we always want to leave our audience with something dope to step to. And since we are talking about one of the more prolific rap artists we've had of the last generation, uh, I feel like I want to go with another suggestion from the Doom catalog. And that would be mm Food, also from 2004. Uh, um, love it. Might be, I mean, I love Mad Villainy. I think maybe this album, just for me, might edge it out in terms of my favorite of the Doom LPs. Um, and a lot of it's just the frenetic verve of it. And I think this really goes back it's to a funny. lot of what you've it's been just saying. It's funnier. Right. And, but I mean, just the kind of record. the pace of it. And just the fact that like you were saying how mad villainy feels like, because the songs are short, it's just kind of like stick and move, stick and move. And to me, mm food has that same, like just energy and electricity in terms of how fast it moves around and what it throws at the, throws at the wall. I mean, you know what the song is on that one, right? You tell me. I mean, you- I like rap snitch conditions. That was always my song because it's just so funny to me. There's rules to this shit. Fools dare care. Everybody want to rule the world with tears for fear. Yeah, yeah, tell them, tell it on the mountain hill. Running up their mouth, Bill. Everybody doubting still. Former, keep it up and get tested. Pop through your bubble vest or double breasted. He keep a See, that are whole cakes for me. Those are the songs. Never try to bag you when she's on the rag. Never let her fries a rag boo. Which will have you under some type of spell crying dag. Her name on the back in a tattoo. Whether a bougie or a nerd whole street chick, don't call a wife. I was always more of a potholders guy, but it's just it's, it's th- great. That, it's that great because so also, Ill. you know, yeah. and also Count Base D is just like a G. He like yeah. that, you know, he's the best. Super so. slept on. Absolutely. Super. Jesus crabs in the barrel past the old bay. Hot as hell and it's a cold day in it. Working on a way that we can roll away tinted. Some say the price of holding heat is often too high. You either be in a coffin or you be the new guy. So Dante, if what would you recommend that if people really enjoyed this conversation and they they got into, you know, Mr. Hood, they got into Black Bastards, they're gonna get into Mad Villainy, what should be next on their list, on their Doom playlist? I mean, if they haven't listened to Operation Doomsday, MF Food, Monster Island Czars, um, those those are all great records. I mean, those are ones I would investigate uh, deeply, go through yeah. all of them, and you'll find gems on every single one of them. Um, you know, I, I mean, Born Like This is a, a hodgepodge to me, so... Um, but there's some there's some genius on there. Curled up, begging, laying on the canvas instead of in a ready position like praying mantis. Scissors, landis, grand fist, sandwich, stance with slam on stitches, switch hands, it's damn snitch. Any street corner could be the platform to meet the feet. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Dante Ross. Dante, what are you working on these days? 
um, doing a lot of writing. I've got a show in development at Amazon um, and and a couple other things I'm in the middle of doing. You know, just, just writing a lot more. I have a book coming out in the fall called Son of the City. Um, and that's that's it. I manage a guy named Marlon Kraft, who's a, a fantastic rapper and, and actually doing really well right now. So that's the gist of what I'm doing these days. And where can people find you online? You can find me at on uh, Dante Ross on Instagram, Dante Ross on Twitter, and uh, every other social media platform there is. So I'm not hard to find. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.